We have about a half an hour for discussion, questions in the talks or from your practice. Anything that seems relevant to taking the practice home. I know some people, some teachers break it into conventional and ultimate reality. And uh, I think there's some value for that, to that, using those words. But uh, I don't think it's valuable to think of it as two different places or two different things. So it's, it's, it's like uh, it's more perspective. And uh, conditional reality or the uh, awareness of conditions, generally the mind takes up things, objects, conditions, right? Conditions which have the nature to move, to come and go. But through the process of the mind taking them up and fixing on them and being confused with memory, you know, like I. I know you, Dave, from previous experiences. And so this current object of hearing and seeing you gets confounded by another object, which is my memories of you, right? And together with you know, the tendencies of my perspective, my limited perspective, I impute you know, something called Dave. And it has a certain reality. But it, that reality is based on the coming together of these different conditions, including this particular perspective that objects or conditions are things apart from everything else. So the unconditioned is the mind relaxing its fixation on conditions, whether it's a, the memory of Dave coming up or the visual or auditory perception of Dave. The mind is relating to all of those conditions with wisdom. And by wisdom, we mean we're seeing the actual nature, which is the predominant thing about Dave is it comes and goes as a, as a visual perception, auditory perception, uh, mental perception of a memory of Dave. All of that stuff is coming. That's what really stands out for with a wisdom mind or a mind with um, right view. And so it's not that I don't get Dave. It's not that I can't function in a conventional reality. But I'm not confused by the auditory, visual, mental perception of Dave. I'm not fixing it anywhere. Does that make sense? <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> My siblings and I used to complain, especially when we left town as grown-ups and came back to relate to our parents. And 
Yeah. And that particular view that things aren't changing, that Mimi is the same as my thought and ideas and memories about Mimi, that there's a lot of massaging of the data, the sort of present moment data, to, to um, conform with the basic view that things are things in and of themselves. And to make my memory and my current auditory and visual perceptions of Mimi all kind of fit with this idea that, yeah, it's the same Mimi as before. You know, that it, and that's a lot of work, you know, it's uh, for them. And, the, you know, that's why we're so tired all the time. <laughs> to make our world fit our notions of things is exhausting. That's why it's so lightening, enlightening to have to live out of wisdom or right view. <clears throat> because the mind doesn't have to do all that work. Things are what they are, and there's nothing, there's no work at making things conform to uh, narrow views of things. isn't it? <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I think it ultimately comes down to trust and, uh, and priorities. Trusting that if we uh, let the number one priority be the number one priority, the rest will figure themselves out. The rest of the priorities and incentives we have and desires we have will kind of figure themselves out. But we need a top dog. And, uh, you know, the top dog is freedom. Because otherwise, if we, if some, if our top dog is like uh, having health or uh, getting our emotions under control, that it's going to affect all of our other aspirations in life. Because they're all going to have that same flavor of driving forward, getting somewhere, getting rid of something. So if we make freedom, the release, the unshakable release of the heart, our aspiration, then 
uh, all of the other aspirations have to conform to that basic tone because this is the top dog. This is what we're devoted to in life. And then taking care of the child has to fit in that, you know, and doing physical exercise or mindful exercise has to flow out of that. And then it doesn't make sense to be running to the Y with our head cut off to get our exercise if our deepest aspiration that we're really working on, I mean, not just a theoretical deep aspiration, but actually our felt deep aspiration, you know, something that comes up all the time because it is our actual aspiration, not because we think it should be. You know, and it, then that's really going to stand out, the running to the health club with their head cut off. Like, oh wait, this isn't fitting what I really want. So what can I do? You know, and then things te- seem to make sense. I mean, I know for myself, it has been really important since right from the beginning when I got interested in, in meditation practice in the early 80s. It's been really important for me to take my life and connect it with a community, group of people, and, and through different kinds of commitment to, commitments to teachers and organizations and responsibilities that keep that aspiration close and obvious. Because it's just so easy to get distracted by, especially if you're like me and who has somebody, a personality that has a lot of ambition, that is naturally curious about a lot of different things. Um, and I uh, can get you know pulled away. So I I found that I have found that really valuable in terms of continuing to develop my practice in formal and informal ways is to be connected with a um, you know I want to say a lineage like a a tradition of doing the practice really tapping into that. And there are a lot of uh, things that. Uh, or overly rigid about those kind of organizations and those that way of doing it, you know, that's a particular strategy. You have, you know, a lot of conforming and a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of attachment to form and to the way this organization or the way this teacher, and, and you have to put up with a lot of that and not be confused by it to take advantage of what those uh, those that strategy has for us. But I think there are other ways. You know, there are definitely other ways. That's just that has been mostly my way. Yeah, Patty. Um, one of the things about you know that's coming up about this retreat is how much suffering I get from wanting to control or desire to control or falling into that habit of energy where I'm controlling. And what's interesting is going back out in the world um, every night. Like there's a frenetic energy that I'm working with, and I don't really know. I don't want to fight that, but I don't know how to balance that. You know, I mean, here it's a little more. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Dry. <laughs> kind of dry, you said. Yeah, it's yeah. a little bit. Well, there's a there's a lot of safety we get just being here that we might not notice until we leave. And uh, and at first, I'm sure you notice, people notice, like when you leave a retreat setting, either at the end of the retreat or like we did this week at the end of the night, there can be a really nice, expansive feeling, a beautiful feeling as you're driving home, even as you walk in the place. But 
you, often people notice um, the lack of uh, protection after a while. Like, and then, then it, it's good to really recognize what we get from supportive containers. But that doesn't mean it's bad to be out of it. It just means the way we practice is different. It's going to be messier. And it has much more the flavor of forgiveness and beginning again and uh, relax, like really learning the lesson of uh, that emotions and mind states are their own thing. Like really getting that lesson deeply that I'm, there is nobody in control of mind states and emotions. Wisdom can arise that creates a sense of control. But if you really look, wisdom isn't giving us control. It's creating space to stay steady in the storms that do arise. So think of it as different lessons that we learn. And also, one of the lessons we learn is how valuable it can be to be grounded in a community, whether it's just the people you're living with or a spiritual community like Common Ground or just the community that we create through our aspiration and linking uh, our mind and our life with uh, like a tradition, a practice, a, a path of awakening that men and women have been doing. We can use our imagination to connect with that in a way that creates a lot of protection. Remembering and even visualizing the beneficent beings, all the good wishes that are now supporting our practice right now there are countless beings wishing well for us, wishing for our practice to develop. And we can bring that up as a way of creating that safety, even when we're away from our immediate community or practice. And of course, um, when it, it, it's appropriate, getting outside of human civilization to some degree, because our civilization, our culture, is built on greed, anger, and delusion primarily. And so that's what it vibrates with. And we all sympathetically vibrate together. So when we're in the middle of human civilization that's predominantly about greed, anger, and delusion, and we've got the sounding board that is just perfect for reverberating with that predominant energy of the culture, it takes a lot of wisdom to be in the middle of the world and not to be pushed around by it and sucked into it and confused by it. Um, so, you know, most spiritual uh, practice centers, as much as they can be, are in natural settings where there's less of that neurotic human psychic energy vibrating around. And there's more the ocean or the breeze or the sound of wind going through trees and things like that, that we can tune into more natural systems. And because it really matters what we pay attention to, we can be in the middle of, you know, the Mall of America and be really tuned into one of those trees there in the, whatever that main area is. And so we don't, we can find it anywhere because it's not like we're ever apart from nature. But, but we're conditioned to be, our mind is conditioned already to notice the human neurotic energy. And it, it's not so much in the habit to notice the free flow of dependent co-arising, you know, the great, amazing 
freely flowing movement of causes and conditions. We tend not to notice that so much. You know how it is. We immediately, somebody walks in the room who's really in a bad place, we immediately notice that person, right? We notice we have, we're like a magnet to neurotic human energy. We pick it up immediately. Someone, and we just, you know, somebody's angry immediately. I must have done something, right? I mean, I feel this all the time, being in the role of a teacher. And, you know, people have bad moods sometimes. But it's so easy to personalize it. <laughs> or, you know, people are sleepy or dull, you know, and it's very easy. And this is just natural. I mean, we are all doing this all the time. So this is, you know, this is our predicament. Other thoughts people have or questions? Yeah, Mary, and then Ellis. Um, I just wanted to, I have so much gratitude for being together the last few days. And, um, I yesterday had an experience with Nancy that uh, um, she used the word sukha, which I don't know the definition that my experience was, just that open-hearted and feeling of spaciousness, I think, that you were talking about in the reading. And you've used the word dukkha a lot, so I'd be interested if you could talk about sukha. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the opposite of dukkha. It's a, a happiness, and I liken it to the heart relaxing because it feels safe. It's that, as opposed to joy, which is more like a bright, uh, the mind is really tuning into the expansive, bright movement of energy or joy. That's pitti. And then the other, a more refined kind of happiness is sukha, which is more like because things are so alive and free, the heart relaxes. Ah. So that's more of the sukha. That, uh, it's the relaxation. It's the happiness of the heart, feeling safe, relaxing, putting down boundaries, defenses, you know, releasing those, those things. And the, how good that feels. Leading into an even more uh, sort of refined happiness of letting go, which leads into stillness which that piece of stillness is even an even more refined kind of happiness. So just different flavors of happiness. Yeah, nice to feel, huh? <laughs> Alice, did you have a thought? Yeah. 
how to have compassion. You know what I mean? It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like birthing. You know, I mean, I, uh, I guess they went through it, but <laughs> I haven't given birth. Um, but as our practice opens up, and uh, there's always, we always have to transition from something that's worked really well for us, but is no longer working. You know, as the practice deepens, and. At, you know, for depending on each of our personalities, you know, for some of us, uh, the quality of intentness and seriousness and a kind of, um, you know, if we have that personality or that those mental qualities that, uh, you know, that's just uh, likes the um, feels competent at being fearless and sort of doing what needs to be done. And that's been really valuable. You know, it's really allowed us to um, look at what's difficult to look at, uh, make difficult choices in life about what's important. But of course, <clears throat> the shadow of it was, is we get dependent, identified with the path, being about that intentness, that seriousness, and that sort of volition to uh, take care of things out of compassion for ourselves. And it takes us so far. And then all of a sudden, the tools we've been using don't work anymore and actually start to feel really heavy, just as you described so well. And so you're already seeing what you need to see. And because our, our one, you know, our one strategy that we can always bank on is opening, paying attention. So as you see how tight and restricted, restrictive that strategy feels to kind of want to do it right, uh, want to be compassionate, want to let go, understand that understanding there is something here to let go of, and I really want to do it. And all that is true, I mean, and good. But we have to understand that, like this is the birthing process that how we've done it in the past may no longer work. So we're still up in the right edge. We know that there's a problem. We know that we want to go beyond this problem, which, which is really faith. That's what that is. That's as much as you can take from the past now. It's just faith. Faith that you care. Faith that there's a way through this. And, uh, and maybe even faith that what you uh, no, doesn't work anymore. You know that you got to let go of that. You have to be naked with all of that past inclinations to you know how I'm going to deal with this using strength of mind. And you have to use some a different kind of strength maybe, like patience is a different kind of strength, or forgiveness, or um, 
submission can be a different kind of strength where you allow yourself to be a failure or you allow yourself to not know what to do, you know, and you really embody that experience. But I can't tell you the exact movement, of course, except to uh, be comfortable with that transition, like really trust it. The, the only real danger is, to th- uh, is the thought, and this happens to all of us, is the thought, I must be doing something wrong because it's not working anymore. And, and then we don't know what's off because I really care, I'm really willing to work, you know, and be, in the past that was enough to really care, to really being able to work hard was enough. But now it's not enough. So we have to, you know, go, go to that neutral place, which is exactly what we don't want because it feels so helpless and vulnerable being in the not knowing place, like how, how the practice is going to unfold from here. But you see how it, it's so naturally about going beyond self-centered notions. We have to, we have to move from this path as something that I've taken out because I care about myself and I want to make my life better to something that's natural and impersonal and happening on its own. Because if it's about freedom, well, it will never feel like freedom if we have to do it and, and we have to do the work of it. That, that doesn't feel like freedom. So freedom has to mean we have to, we have to let go. But that, that birthing process is really difficult. It's really hard to let go of what seems like has saved us over and over again, that strength, that sort of volitional strength and volitional compassion. Yeah, Jenna, and then we'll have to end. what you said from uh, my point of view <laughs> you know when uh, when our conditioned mind which remember conditioned mind doesn't necessarily mean ignorant our conditioned mind can be very subtle very deep understand a lot about the Dharma but it's still from a self point of view and when the conditioned mind begins to open to space or to emptiness well, what's it going to think? <laughs> what is this? You know, is this what I want? 
or even if like I, I want to check it out because I just naturally have a lot of curiosity or I believe the teachings of the Buddha and you know this is I know this is the direction just an intuition that this is the way but from the self point of view emptiness is going to be appear to be cold and empty of course <laughs> empty of everything familiar and so now now but the problem will always be that yeah but I should you know I should taste it I should look at it I should get closer but the problem is an emptiness the problem what makes it cold what makes it suspicious is the mind is the conditioned minds relating to it the view itself so that's the trick the object, it's always the same. So it could be the same with humiliation or with knee pain or with this very subtle thing. We've got an experience. We've got the mind that's knowing the experience. We always think the problem is here with emptiness, in your case, or knee pain, in somebody else's case. But actually, the issue, what we're not seeing is this. We're not seeing the mind that's knowing the knee pain. We're not seeing the mind that's knowing emptiness until there isn't anything here to see, any view, any restriction, any friction to see. So you have to, in different ways, invite the mind to notice the view you're looking through, the subtle aversion or the subtle ambition, you know, whatever it might be that's there. You have to see it as something. Don't be entranced with the sense of space or emptiness. Be interested in the mind, heart, that's knowing, you know, and uh, just like you would, you know, just like you are really good at noticing different sensations in the body, different emotions, you have to get really good in the same way, but it's much more subtle at just very refined experiences of dukkha, of resistance, of ambition, and it gets really, really subtle how the mind creates stances. It's as subtle as anything can be. I was just talking to Ajahn Pranadamo when he was visiting in December about um, a talk that Ajahn Mahabua, one of the great Thai meditation masters who's still alive, gave about his awakening and uh, and just him describing the you know this brilliant chitta, brilliant, boundless, spacious, bright mind, but not yet released. You know, and uh, and just how he was able to awaken to just the thinnest, uh, you know, just the the thinnest veneer of of selfing. And I, I'm trying to remember exactly, but it was something like, and you know, you can just imagine, maybe years, but a long time, being able to uh, live out of this seemingly amazingly expanded state of mind free beautiful state of mind but not yet released because and eventually he saw that the brilliance of the mind the heart the emptiness it it had a very subtle center to it you know it wasn't really empty, which was a subtle very subtle stance in the brilliance and the emptiness so the whole process is just discerning more and more subtle stances that the mind is using as a defense or as a, a kind of a, 
you know, a last stance of just holding on. And to be really patient with that process. I mean, one of the things I often remind myself is just to be really grateful for the path, you know, and not so worried, like, what level of resistance or friction we're working with right now. Because we can be free with that, you know, free just knowing that eventually, whatever that is that you brought up, Jana, eventually the mind will be clear. Oh, it's this. And as soon as the mind sees it, letting go happens. Without you having to do anything, the letting go of that barrier, that boundary will happen. And then there will be sort of a more complete experience of release and maybe some identification with that more complete experience with release. And eventually, you know, that will be seen and, and on and on. Yeah. So we have about 15 minutes for walking and then a 30-minute sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.